0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Today on the programme, a special episode focused on both COVID 19 and the future of medicine, and how we we'll receive our healthcare in the future, and whether artificial intelligence will render doctors redundant. You'll also find out why a globally recognised cardiologist hasn't used his stethoscope for years. The pace of research around the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the disease it causes has been unprecedented in science. One person who's been watching it closely and at times become the news himself when he's been outraged at some of the developments, including the risk that vaccines could be put at risk by politicians, is Eric Topol, who's Professor of Molecular Medicine at the Scripps Research Institute in California, as well as being Editor-in-Chief of Medscape, one of the world's most reliable sources of medical information. I spoke to Eric Topol in a wide-ranging interview about the latest coronavirus findings, the response of the United States to the pandemic, and his decades of work in the fields of digital and personalised medicine. I'm glad to
1: be with you, Norm.
0: Let's start before we get on to all the other things that you've been writing and thinking about over the years. One can't start without talking about COVID and this new virus, SARS-CoV-2. Before we get to the US response... As a molecular biologist, as well as a physician and somebody who in more recent years has really been watching the span of medical research and new innovation. What's your observation about this virus as a virus?
1: Well, I think it's declared itself as the ultimate challenge. I think one of the things that makes it so difficult is that it's so variable how it can affect people from the most asymptomatic, you know, no symptoms at all, and then all the way to lethality with the lingering chronic condition in between. So it is diverse, not just with respect to that, but the fact that it can reach almost every organ in the body. So I think we underestimated it back at the end of last year, in the beginning of 2020. And every day that we go forward, we start to see that it's potential to do harm to people is much more extensive than we had thought in the beginning.
0: I mean, it's not as if we're not familiar with emerging or re-emerging viruses, you know, we've had Ebola, MERS, HIV, Zika, even if you go back to the Korean War, hantan fever. I mean, what do you think it is about this that gives it this variation? Do you think we're getting down to the bottom of why it does what it does? I think we're getting there, uh, Norman, it's a really good question.
1: I think we have learned that it is a different virus, just with subtle changes in its structure from SARS, and obviously from the other coronaviruses, because it really does get to cells that have ACE2 expressed and does that
0: so much better than SARS, so that explains its reach. Just well, before you go on, the ACE2 is this, the lock and key mechanism, it's the receptor into which it docks to get into the body.
1: Yes, exactly. So the fact that it does that so well and the fact that it gets all over the body, but in addition, the fact that people cannot have symptoms, but instead inside them, we know that half the people that have had CAT scans of their lungs have abnormalities consistent with COVID illness, and we're just starting to see that with the heart as well. So it's like a trojan horse, you know, it gets in a person's body and many people don't even know it and they and some of those people are actually having some tissue organ damage that they're unaware of. So this is just a, a really tough one because in so many ways it's having these effects The way a person responds without symptoms, but still can have hits inside their body, you know, we don't understand that. We know that most people, when they're exposed, develop an immune response. It looks like people that don't have symptoms have a more modest immune response. But, you know, there's a lot of things about
0: the immune system that still we need to learn. You're a card-carrying cardiologist. What have we learned about the effects on the heart over the last six or eight months?
1: Right. Well, I've been studying that and reading up everything I can get a hold of on that topic because, as you say, it is my area of most interest. So what I think we can say is that the lining of arteries, the so-called endothelium, no less the heart muscle, all layers of the heart, can get directly infiltrated by the virus. Those cells can be taken over by the virus. And there is also this inflammation immune response to those same cells. So there are different ways the heart can be affected, not just from the arteries, but also the heart muscle. And that's why we have the inflammation of the heart, the myocarditis and and this weakened heart, the cardiomyopathy and heart failure. And just damage to the heart, which is occurring in a lot of people who who get very sick with COVID. So it's a really big
0: challenge. You've been one of the original promoters of personalized medicine. We've got to get away from averages, the sort of averages you get from large trials, and try to find out what matters to individuals by their personal makeup. Have we any sense, and we must have been doing genomics on the people who are suffering from these side effects. Is anything turning up when you do massive gene sequencing of such people that might personalize their... find out why they're getting such a personalized reaction? On the genomics,
1: there's been quite a bit of work, and the main finding has been this cluster of genes on chromosome 3 which we actually just published today in Nature, is actually from uh, a Neanderthal origin. And it's common in South Asia and in, relatively common in some parts of Europe, too. So that is associated with severe COVID. The other thing that's really interesting, more so than the, the genetics, is just last week, we learned that about 10% of people have antibodies to their interferon and so what that is the first line of defense of the immune system so the fact that people have antibodies to that and get very sick now we know why about one in ten people are really destined to have much higher risk apart from the things that we all know now like diabetes and obesity and you know chronic lung disease now we're starting to get to that individualized story
0: We've known this since the early days of the pandemic, that comor, what's called comorbidities. In other words, you've not just got one diagnosis, you've got other things going wrong with you. I mean, what is it, for example, about obesity and diabetes? Is it that your body's generally inflamed or what's going on there?
1: The consensus, although it's still a little vague as to the specific mechanism, is that there's this generalized inflammation.
0: Which predates the COVID. In other words, when you're, right. when you're fatter or have diabetes, your immune system is activated.
1: Yeah, and the reason why people get sick, so sick, it isn't necessarily the virus, but it, what it is is the immune system goes haywire, this hyper-inflammatory reaction. You know, there's a predisposition to having that when you have underlying diabetes, obesity, you know, and other coexisting conditions.
0: We'll come to vaccines and treatments in a moment. What's been your reaction to the way the United States has handled this pandemic? Because while you have focused over the years on personalized medicine, this is a population problem.
1: What I have to say is uh, the United States response has been an abject failure. It's been a, a, a true disaster. And it really started back in January when we should have had testing capacity ready. And when you can't test, you're flying blind. And that went on for several weeks, all the way into March. And so by that time, there was diffuse spread. And basically, we've never dug out of that hole. But added to that, we've had leadership that's just so anti-science, not letting the people of public health experts and scientists lead the way, but in fact, inhibiting, directly suppressing good practices like masks and physical distancing, like not reopening until there's containment, as was achieved in Australia so extremely well, and uh, also now reopening schools yet again, and all the things that are wrong, you know, like, let's try it again. Let's just replicate the experiment of hurting people. And that's what's happening. And so we are still at 40,000 new infections a day, and we're actually heating up again into a third surge. It's been terribly disappointing because I think many would agree that in prior times, the U.S. would be expected to be one of the best performing countries against a, an epidemic or pandemic. So here we are, I would say, in the developed world, the worst.
0: Some people would argue that um, – so I'll, I'll give you a, a, an analogy, I suppose, here in Australia where Victoria has seen uh, an outbreak, a second wave, which has been unique in a sense in Australia, but in a state which has had very weak public health infrastructure – Do you really think that you would have coped with this pandemic well because you don't have a good public health infrastructure in the United States on the ground and you don't have a coordinated health system?
1: Well, those are good points. We don't even have a health system. We don't provide health care for tens of millions of people. It isn't a right of a citizen here. So you're, you're right. But we could have covered for some of those things, Norman, if we had the testing right from the beginning, because once you are blown through and have so many hundreds of thousands of infections all throughout the country, then you have a problem because if you can even start to hire contact tracing and isolation, you can't even do those things when you're it's out of control. And we never got it below 20,000 new infections a day. And so, you know, what you've had in Victoria, that that would be a tiny ripple, and you had it totally contained, and you had, like you said, you have really,
0: overall in your country, excellent public health support. What's your analysis of what's going on in the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration? I mean, the Centers for Disease Control wrote the textbook on pandemic control.
1: Well, somehow that textbook got lost or got thrown away. The reason why we failed so much is because, Both the CDC and the Food and Drug Administration were basically taken out. This has been a White House Trump-run response to the pandemic. Robert Redfield, who runs the CDC, has not had any presence. There's things, as I think you know, that are just extraordinary just despicable how the weekly morbidity and mortality report that the medical community relies upon was manipulated and censored. There were guidelines put out about not doing testing, not doing testing on people without symptoms, but exposed. I mean, all sorts of things that were done to the CDC by Trump and the White House, by ill-informed advisors that a neuroradiologist that Trump brought in to crowd out Tony Fauci. So, you know, we are in a disarray. The agencies who we would depend on totally are not even being able to do what they need to do. The FDA has issued emergency use authorization for convalescent plasma, claim that it reduced mortality by 35%, which has no data to support that, Mm. and made it in a so called very historic breakthrough on the evening before the national convention for Trump. So we are seeing things that you just can't even make this stuff up. I mean, it's nightmarish.
0: Should a new administration come in? I mean, how deep is the problem in those agencies, which people around the world look to for guidance? How long would it take to remediate should there be a Biden administration?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think in a matter of you know weeks and months, We could restore the order, the charge. You know, there are really tens of thousands of good people, career scientists and hardworking people. If we just get the right leadership and the authority, I mean, they basically have become subservient, the leadership level of these agencies. So just restoring good leadership, it can be done relatively quickly, but we're still going to have a big hole to dig out on.
0: Do you trust the vaccine manufacturers that they won't be railroaded into introducing the vaccine early? I'm worried about it.
1: As you may know, a large group of us uh, wrote a letter to Pfizer uh, last week, open letter to the CEO and sent it to the board of directors, because if no company files for an emergency use, use authorization, then we don't have to worry about this question you just raised. But if it's up to Trump, and he alluded to it again in in the whatever you want to call the debate with Biden he, if it's up to him he'll have a he'll use the vaccine as a tool as an election prop and that's the last thing we need right now because we have a lot of lack of trust about the vaccine And we need to do this right. If one of these programs, the ones that are ripe over the next couple of months, if they are hyper accelerated just to be used politically, we risk the entire vaccine landscape, all the programs, no less just the one that went too quickly and then later showed up with issues of safety or efficacy. So, you know, I'm hoping we are derailing the chance of this takeover which has been announced, proclaimed many times by uh, President Trump, that he has an interest of getting the vaccine approved before the Election Day. Uh, hopefully Pfizer will go along with this. You know, this is the kind of thing where the U.S. can shine because... They've done these vaccine programs with the highest velocity you could ever imagine. The fact that it's possible we'll have fully complete phase three trials by December, you wouldn't ever have thought it was possible. So I think if we just take the time, wait the extra weeks, it could be even a couple more months beyond December, uh, possibly, we will have multiple vaccines that pass the threshold of efficacy. That's not a high threshold. That's a 50, 60 percent. But it certainly is a step in the right direction.
0: You're watching the research that's going on. One of the hopes at the beginning of this pandemic is that you might get at last a broad spectrum antiviral in the same way we've got broad spectrum antibiotics for bacteria, where we can actually be much more ready for the next pandemic with an effective drug that treats these viruses. Are we any closer to that? Yes,
1: I think we will see neutralizing antibodies. They are exceptionally potent. And they work early, even potentially preventively in high-risk people. So
0: these are manufactured Uh, monoclonals?
1: Yes. There's two phase two trials, that is hundreds of people, not definitive trials. But they show very effective uh, ability to clear the virus. And some preliminary data to suggest they prevent hospitalizations and, and medical resource use. So they look really good. That is probably, if they could go to scale and be made very inexpensively, or these so-called nanobodies, which are really proteins that would achieve the same thing as a monoclonal antibody, they would be a bridge to vaccine. Because even when the vaccines are approved, as you well know, it'll be many months before around the world, that people start to get vaccinated at scale. So we need something in the in between. And, you know, all we have right now for treatments are at the very severe stage, like dexamethasone. We need things early and mid-course so that people don't ever progress to the severe state.
0: Professor Eric Topol is director and founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in California. And you're listening to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Now let's get to what Derek Topol has spent years thinking about, namely the impact of artificial intelligence and digital innovation on healthcare, including how it's changed his own practice as a cardiologist. Let's move now to an area that you were writing on as recently as March of this year, and it's been a long obsession of yours, which is, in a sense, typified by the name of one of your books, The Creative Destruction of Medicine, the capacity of digital transformation, artificial intelligence to transform the work of doctors, nurses, and healthcare systems. Take me to your daily practice with your patients and tell mm-hmm. me how you utilize digital health in your own practice. And then let's move out into the bigger areas of artificial intelligence, deep machine learning, and what have you. But how has it changed your work? Oh, it's
1: had a dramatic effect, Norman. I think if you go back, it's been a decade now since I used a stethoscope. So that kind of tells the whole story because, you know, What do you do? you talk- stand at
0: the end of the room and walk for the <laughs> best? Or what, do you, what do you do? No, no.
1: Um, I tell that to cardiologists. They look at me like, you know, what a joke. You're a poor excuse for a cardiologist. But then I show them what I do, and some of my colleagues, of course, do it as well now. But, um, so this is handheld have- ultrasound, is it? Yes, I have a smartphone that connects to a probe, an ultrasound probe, that gets high resolution ultrasound images within a second. That is, you put a little gel on the tip of the probe and you are imaging the heart and you see everything. I mean, literally everything. So you see how strong the heart muscle is, how thick it is, the size of the chambers, the valves. You can also see if there's any leak of the valves and I can share it with patients. So every patient who I see, I use this tool Share it if they want. I send them the video so they can email it to them so they can have it and study it if they like. But the point is, is that this is beyond the era of lub dub. I mean, you know, this is seeing images.
0: And so just and to explain, people. this is what you hear when you put
1: the stethoscope on the chest. Yeah, is oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. Lub well, dub. Yeah. Do you call it that? There? Yeah. I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, that is so old. I mean, the Laneck era, interestingly, you know, if you go back 210 years, when he invented the stethoscope for 20 years, physicians revolted. They didn't want to use it because they said they didn't want to learn, have to learn the sounds of dub and all the other sounds of the body. And they thought it would get in the way of their patients, of their interaction. Of course, it became the icon of medicine. But now we're going through another revolution because people don't want to give up their stethoscope for something that's a far more powerful tool. So. I have been so enamored by that and I think that's one thing that any patient who comes to see me will know that it's different than when they saw another doctor or another cardiologist if they ever saw one. Now, other things that I'm into are, you know, being... Just before
0: you go on, because we get enamored by technology and the, the analogy I'd use here would be MRI scans for the knee or the back. So we've created an epidemic of spinal surgery and knee surgery because people think that's fantastic. My daughter sent me off for an MRI of the knee and you find <laughs> crap basically in the knee, which everybody at the right. age of 55 yeah. has got. And you end up in the arms of an orthopedic surgeon and all orthopedic surgeon what to do is operate on your knee, even with the best will in the world. But part of it is that that's, you, you that's see... the
1: American way.
0: You, you well, just, it's the Australian way too. You just American medicine. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> yeah, well, it's Australian medicine too. But doing that ultrasound, you're going to see stuff in the heart that you were never meant to see. And will you over-diagnose and become overwrought by this simple little technology, which has been around for a long time, but it's been in, in the hands of specialists, echocardiologists... Yeah, you're bringing up the the critical question about the so-called incidental
1: OMA, you know, these findings that you you really don't want to see because it could be a rabbit hole for the patient and for the physician. I'm a very conservative physician. I don't chase down things unless the patient's having symptoms or if it's a rare situation like, for example, a narrowing of the aortic valve or a widening of the aorta, which you happen to find, which could be life-saving. So, But other than very rare things, I would never chase things down. I mean, unfortunately, I have colleagues that get these calcium scans of the heart, looking for calcium, and they do it routinely, and then they send patients for cardiac catheterization and for surgery and stenting. I have never in my career as a cardiologist ordered one of those scans, but they are done routinely. I don't know if they're done in Australia. Unfortunately, Um, yes. Yeah, so this is an example of... I use the ultrasound in a parsimonious way because so many people otherwise would get a formal ECHO study, and it's very expensive. Here in the U.S., the charge for that is over $1,000. You know, I do it for nothing. I, there's no charge. I mean, it's just instead of using a stethoscope. stethoscope yeah. And it's just one dimension of the digital transformation of medical practice for me. I mean, I, I get people who have heart rhythm problems to be monitoring that on their own whether that's through fingertip sensors or for a Band-Aid patch or a smartwatch. You know, so that I try to get people who are willing to take more charge. And all the tools that we have right now to do that are terrific.
0: You wrote an editorial, I think, in March, talking about the future of telehealth and telemedicine, not realizing probably what was in front of you in terms of COVID-19, where telehealth and telemedicine has boomed because people don't want to go and see their doctor. What do you think... Now, we're six or eight months into this and around the world, you've seen a boom in telehealth. Although in the Australian context, it's mostly telephone consultation. Where's it
1: mm-hmm. going to go? The economist asked me to write that, you know, just when the pandemic was starting about, you know, where this could be headed. And as you say, it kind of exploded in its use. I think there's two sides of this. One is that you really want to see a patient in person because it's so much more rich as to where you can connect. connect. But, in the time where physical distancing was essential, this was a way to bridge that time. Also, I think we learned that we can be very efficient and use this uh, you know very effectively. The problem we have today, frankly, is it's very superficial. It's a video chat. You don't really have the ability to get objective data like the physical exam. And what's interesting is, going back to the smartphone, ultrasound for just a second now we have the beginning of artificial intelligence and we just wrote about this recently in the lancet whereby you will have the uh, artificial intelligence guide someone even uninitiated who's never done an ultrasound of any part of their body and basically take them through it and automatically capture a high quality image uh, and then that can be transmitted to a doctor or a radiologist or whatever so we're moving into a time when we could get really exquisite data, whether it's through sensors, whether it's through imaging, whether it's through lab tests that people can do themselves. So we're going to get to this telemedicine 2.0 someday, you know, in the next few years it'll start, where we're going to have a lot of these key tests that might be done if you were to see a person in a clinic, but you would be able to do that because the patients will have more autonomy and capability.
0: We'll come back to patient autonomy just before we we end the interview, but I want to talk about artificial intelligence because many doctors see that as a threat, particularly in radiology and pathology, where they say, well, you'd have to say to your kids who are doing medicine, you might have to think twice about doing radiology or pathology because computers are going to supersede you and be better than you. Is that true? (laughs) No, no. We can't ever think about this as a either
1: or, Norman. I think the way to think about this is we have lots of errors right now in medicine. It's a big issue. We have not enough time with patients. We've had erosion of the patient-doctor relationship. So no physician, no uh, clinician, nurses and across the board should be threatened. They should look at this as a uh, booster, in some ways a rescue, because this is going to make the accuracy better, the streamline of, of our efforts and efficiency better. But the big overarching goal, and that's what the whole deep medicine book thesis was about, is that if we really go after this with the ultimate goal, it's to restore the depth of the relationship between patients and clinicians. So what you're saying there is automate what you can. Exactly. And so when you do that, And you basically decompress a clinician's efforts of having to go through a lot of charts and pages and screens. When you get that down to seconds instead of tens of minutes or whatever long it takes, when you get the never-have-to-be-at-a-keyboard, As a doctor, because AI can take the conversation and make a wonderful synthetic note, as we've seen, which is far better than the notes that get done today through electronic record systems, when we can get patients to do algorithms to make diagnoses that are not of serious nature uh, on their own. Things like a urinary tract infection or a skin rash or lesion or a child's ear infection or so many things that are common that don't require a doctor to make the preliminary diagnosis. When we do all these things and we validate them properly, then we pave the way for then bringing people together, patients and clinicians, so that they can spend time on important matters, more time. And so that's the exciting end goal is to bring medicine back to the way it used to be in, you know, 1970s. I know mean, I'm an old dog now, and I remember when I got out of medical school at the end of the 70s and 80s, it was a different way of practice of medicine. The business of medicine, you know, just wasn't there as it is today. But the
0: there are a couple of challenges, well, more than a couple. One is people trusting a digital system in terms of privacy and the confidentiality of their information. And the second is more technical, which Elon Musk has spoken about, Which is, can you trust deep learning because you get to a point where you don't understand the algorithms or how the machine's making the decisions?
1: Right. So, you know, that's why it's kind of like what we were talking about with vaccines. You don't want to have shortcuts. You got to validate these things. And the validation is never over. Because once you implement an algorithm, a a deep neural net, then you have to make sure it's under continuous surveillance because it could be have an adversarial attack. It could have, you know, the glitches that we see in any type of software, but it could be hurting people, you know, at some scale. So this is a, a powerful tool, you know, these algorithms The privacy, I'm not as worried about because there are new ways to – you can never guarantee privacy, but you sure can tighten things up with things like homomorphic encryption and federated AI. There's a lot of things that AI has brought us that will make privacy and security much, much tighter than it's ever been as long as we respect that and implement that. So I think we can navigate through that. My concern is that, you know, right now, you've already touched on this, there's not a lot of embracement for this era among the medical community. As you say, there, there's a feeling that it's, it's threatening. That, that shouldn't be the case. We should all work together to try to get it so that it, it is a reality because it will help as long as it's done properly.
0: You've spoken about, in a sense, the democratization of medicine and the power shift. And doctors have always had the power. And the shift, at least when you talk to healthcare managers and systems, they say, oh, we're going to design a patient-centered system. And you very rarely see patient-centered systems anywhere in the world. How does the shift occur where the people on whom medicine is being enacted actually have more power?
1: Right. Well, I think the... This is a very difficult thing for physicians of letting go because they tend to be, you know, all controlling, at least the older ones and the younger ones I think understand that democratization is inevitable. And that's part of what as we discussed, that you're you basically transferring some of the charge, some of that control to the patients who are willing. Now, you know, there may be some who are elderly or for whatever reason are unwilling to accept that extra responsibility, but as it turns out, almost every study, every survey, shows that the vast majority, 80% or more of people, really want to have this extra responsibility because they get more engaged and they're more likely to, to take better care of themselves because they're, they're involved. They're acquiring the data. They're looking at the support that algorithms can provide for them. So, you know, I think we're headed in this way. It's an inevitable story. Once data became portable and people were generating their own data Outside of the confines of a doctor's office or a hospital setting, this is something that is unavoidable. But remember too that we have a global crisis of burnout. We have the most depressed clinicians, you know, in history, with uh, no shortage of suicides either. We need a remedy, and so instead of looking at this whole path that we've been discussing as a, a threat or something that you know, should be potentially used in the wrong way. We should be figuring out how to use it in a way to get us out of a very tough situation. I mean, I think that this burnout is a very serious phenomena and the pandemic has made it worse.
0: And is that what you say to a doctor who's resistant to the idea?
1: Well, I I try. I don't get everyone converted. I'm not not all that convinced. You're not a natural
0: evangelical.
1: No, no, I'm afraid not. But I try to, you know, uh, write the papers, do the studies, uh, work with data, try to convince people with evidence. And that, I think, is the best way we can do it. There's no real room for evangelism, but there's a lot of room for doing good, rigorous work, good validation. And eventually, although it comes much slower than we'd like, eventually getting things to Uh, move in that direction. I mean, what we saw, you know, for years, we were predicting that telemedicine was going to take off, but it really didn't happen until this year. The pandemic forced it and people are adjusting and they're finding, you know, it can help. But, you know, when I wrote the book several years ago about creative destruction and this was inevitable, who would ever guess that it was going to take a pandemic to finally get people to say, hey, this is actually can be a
0: big helping, helper function. It'd be nice if we didn't take a pandemic. Eric Topol, it's been a pleasure talking to you.
1: Oh, it's been a joy. Thanks so much for having me uh, on, your, on your show.
0: Professor Eric Topol is director and founder of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in California and is editor-in-chief of Medscape. This has been The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the
1: ABC Listen app.